Hello, and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Dr. Andreas Krieg, an assistant professor at the Defence Studies Department of King's College London, and a strategic risk consultant working for governmental and commercial clients in the Middle East. Andreas is the author of Sociopolitical Order and Security in the Arab World, From Regime Security to Public Security, recently published by Palgrave Macmillan. Andreas, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's now nearly two months since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. When it began, uh, the MENA power players were careful not to antagonize Putin. Do you see any shift in that approach from the, the Saudis, the Emiratis, and the Egyptians? No, not at this point. I do think that there is an ideological alignment between these MENA players and, and Russia. They, this is not just about economic interests or energy interests or military interests, as some people made it out. I, I think it's, it's much deeper than that. It's an ideological alignment. I think we're at this pivotal moment in global history in, in where, where all the cards are being reshuffled and um, we'll, we'll see the old liberal post-Cold War order crumbling or at least being challenged and we have an alternative order rising in the east and, and obviously Russia is, is part of that and I do see Egypt, Saudi and the UAE also um, trying to integrate into that order rather than um, trying to pivot closer towards the west and I think this is you know and, and I'm not a great fan of using the analogy of a cold war because I'm, I'm, I don't see it necessarily as a cold war also because the cold war was very bipolar and that's a we're talking about a multipolar environment where every single country, every single state, whether small or big, has to align, has to align itself on, on various fronts. So it's a lot more network-centric than it is uh, black and white. Um, but nonetheless, there is, there is a new... There are two main orders that, that, are, that I see arising, and one is the, the liberal one, which is you know, being challenged and is under a lot of pressure and has been especially under a lot of pressure over the last two or three decades. And, um, on, but we have that alternative order that's led by China, uh, where Russia integrates as well, that is providing alternative also to those countries in the MENA region. Um, and you mentioned Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Egypt in particular. These are the counter-revolutionaries. These are the the neo-authoritarians, if you will, who are learning how to you know, organize social political affairs, who feel that they are no longer um, tied very closely to, to any conditionalities coming from the West because there are alternatives out there now. And in this kind of context, I don't see how the Saudis or why the Saudis or the UAE um, would now opt in closer to to kind of working with the West if it if it is in, indeed becoming increasingly a zero sum game. And I think there is there is an element of zero sum in this because the Western countries, particularly the United States, but also EU and NATO, they do expect their partners, and I'm not using the term ally because these countries in the MENA region aren't allies, they're partners. But these partners now have to kind of, there's an expectation that they pull the line as well, that they um, kind of support their partners in the West now. And um, they have been very hesitant to do so because they're saying, yes, we are partners with the West, but we're also partners with the East. And, um, you know, the, the future for many, especially in the UAE, they see the future not in Washington or in, in Brussels or in London or Paris. They see the future in Beijing. And, you know, Moscow is a lot closer to Beijing ideologically than it is to, uh, to Brussels. So in that respect, you know, I, I do think that long term um, in this zero sum environment that these authoritarian countries in the Middle East will 
uh, will stay neutral. And when they say neutral, obviously from our Western point of view, they're not actually neutral. They're taking a side. They're taking a side in um, with Russia and um, uh, with China. Yeah, shading definitely towards that side of the, of the street. But let me ask you about Qatar. It's got massive gas uh, resources. Uh, so obviously Europe needs gas. They want to wean themselves off of Russian gas. Uh, and, and Qatar can once again, I think, play this outsized role. Uh, there are reports that the ruling family, the Altanis, are split on how to deal with Putin. What can you tell us about that and, and how Qatar is dealing with the war in opposition to uh, you know, the Saudis, the Emiratis and the Egyptians? Of course, it's not very long ago that uh, the Qataris were set against those uh, three. Yes, I, I do think uh, that Qatar, same like Oman and, and especially Kuwait, um, are taking a different position on this. And it's, it's fundamentally an ideological one uh, when it comes to ideology, which underpins the, uh, the, the interest-based approach that the countries have taken also during the Arab Spring. There is a very strong, if not democratic, then at least a liberal uh, element to their ideology. And that doesn't align very well with the ideology of Russia. So when we look at these counter-revolutionary or revolutionary struggles post-Arab Spring in, in Egypt, in Libya, in, in Syria, then the countries were always on the opposite side of where the Russians were. Um, then again, the, the countries have experienced being, you know, being bullied um, by external powers. You know, some some of these powers being larger in size and larger in terms of their military might um, during the blockade post two thousand seventeen. So they've experienced what it feels like to have to to have their sovereignty infringed on, have their territorial integrity not respected. So there is there should be a natural ideological alignment with the fate of the Ukrainians, and that's why the countries have without directly you know criticizing the saudis uh, so criticizing the russians they have taken a, a position that's at least very supportive of the ukrainians um at the same time being hesitant um to call out russia um during the door forum um a couple of weeks ago uh, the countries went very short of criticizing russia without naming russia saying you know they're, they're standing up for sovereignty and territorial integrity they're standing up for the liberal rules-based order and and willing to defend it and then they invited Zelensky to actually give his point of view without so Zelensky was speaking on behalf of Ukraine rather than the, the country speaking on behalf of the Ukrainians what it shows is that the countries are slightly torn uh, because they don't necessarily want to uh, antagonize the Russians but then again you know Qatar is a country that benefits hugely from this conflict um, particularly in the energy domain they expanded their north field uh, their gas field and they investing billions of dollars in into that expansion they were at the time in 2019 when it was announced a lot of people were saying oh that's quite a huge risk because there might not be the demand for it and uh, they might actually not be able to sell all their output and what we see now is the opposite, where, you know, especially European countries are now trying to um, sever their relationship with Russia, especially in the energy domain. They need alternatives and Qatar now provides that alternative. A lot of uh, millions of, um, you know, huge quantities of LNG gas coming online in the next uh, three to five years from Qatar and, you know, Qatar being looking to contract that. So Qatar very much benefits from this. They're benefiting from higher energy prices as well. And we also shouldn't forget that Russia is a competitor in the LNG domain, is a competitor in the gas and energy sector. Um, so whatever happens against Russia, somewhat from a zero sum point of view, um, benefits the countries. At the same time, there is a slight split of, because what we've seen Qatar doing over the last year and a half in particular, is Qatar pivoting very closely towards the United States, very closely to the West. They've really turned their back on this Eastern order 
and um, the countries, you know, very much, whenever the Americans say, can you help us out, whether it's in, in Afghanistan, the countries say yes. When it's in Gaza, the countries are saying yes. When it was in the energy, the energy crisis was looming in January, the countries are saying, yes, we're, we're, we're happy to help out if we can uh, divert some of our deliveries away from Asia towards Europe, very happy to do this. Um, so there is this perception now also among other GCC countries that the, that the countries are now the, not, not just a, a partner of the United States or a partner of the West, but they are becoming increasing an ally. They've been obviously named a major non-NATO ally for the United States. There is, and th that is all positive, but there are some voices in Qatar that are saying, you know, we need to diversify as well. We can't just put all our eggs in the Western bar basket. We can't just put all our eggs in the American basket, and we need to diversify our networks as well. Um, but doing so with a very strong uh, view on um, on ideology as well. And I think there are some in um, you know inconsistencies with the, uh, or let's put it that way, in, in many ways, the incompatibility between what Qatar believes to be the right way of ordering the region and ordering the, uh, the international community and the global environment. And how China or Russia looking are looking at that? Um, you know, the countries have stood up for a degree of civil liberties. They've the ones who supported the revolution, revolutionaries during the Arab Spring. Um, they are have always stood up against authoritarianism. And there is a there is this ideological um, incompatibility be between what Qatar wants to achieve and what China and Russia wants to achieve. So from this point of view. As much as the countries are trying to kind of remain neutral, they have put their basket, their eggs in the in the Western basket, not just in the security domain, but also in the energy domain and the econ economic domain. In in that respect, Qatar needs to be careful. And there are some voices in Qatar saying that need to not be seen as a vessel state of of the United States or of the West. And um, I think so. Some of the voices were saying let's let's be a little bit more. Uh, you know, a little bit more balanced. And there's an, a, a different ideological element that we see across the Arab world, by the way, um, of people taking a pro-Russian approach, which is not about being pro-Putin. It's not about being, you know, in favor of that war against Ukraine, but it's about, you know, calling out the hypocrisy of Western activism, where, you know, whether it's about refugees welcoming Ukrainian refugees, or whether it's about, you know, supporting standing up for liberal values in Ukraine, when ignoring liberal values all over the, the Middle East, when it was in Yemen, when it was in Libya, when it was in Egypt, when it was in Syria. Uh, and, and and now really hypocritically, as soon as it's in, in Europe and it affects white Christians, they're now standing up uh, for it. So there, there were some voices in Qatar that were very critical of that, of saying, actually, in this kind of in this kind of fight between uh, East and West, I, we don't necessarily want to stand on the Western side because the, the West isn't much better. You know what they've done in, in Iraq, what they've done uh, in, in, in Afghanistan hasn't really under you know underscored and and supported the liberal vision or the vision for the liberal order so there, there are these alternative voices as well mm. now in a recent article you wrote for middle east eye you used a phrase that <clears throat> that really caught my eye it was authoritarian reconquista whereby the west uh, as you've already said stood by and allowed the promise of the arab spring to be swept aside and, and you argued that one of the things that the war in ukraine has done is it's laid bare this hypocrisy at the heart of liberal democracy. Open that up a little bit for us, Andreas. No, I mean, this is, this is it. Um, the liberal order is, is based on two values. One is the rights of, you know, the right of sovereignty and the right of states. And the other one is the rights of individuals. Um, of, so the rights of states about, you know, the sanctity of, the, of territorial integrity and sovereignty. And on the, on, the, in, on the individual side, it's about, you know, it's obviously about human rights, but it's also freedom from repression uh, self-determination, individual self-determination as well. 
And that's what the liberal order is all about. The question is just whether the, these states that define themselves as liberal states as being the defenders of that liberal order, whether they've actually done enough to defend these values and, and, and do this so consistently and coherently. And the answer is obviously no. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, Iraq 2003 was a major, um, you know, a major violation of, of liberal values and the liberal, the, the, the liberal uh, uh, rules-based order. Uh, selectively, the West has engaged in Libya, but has ignored Syria um, because it didn't suit their value, uh, their, their interest or because costs were expected to be too high. And we've seen similar things, um, obviously, when it comes to Yemen, when it comes to the counter-revolution as well. I mean, the, the, the West has stood by as those authoritarian countries, like in, most importantly, over the United Arab Emirates, but also Egypt and Saudi Arabia, how they've really more or less successfully over the last uh, couple of years really um, rolled back the achievements of the Arab Spring, the liberal achievements. And the West has done nothing about it. And, and even if you go if you go beyond that, um, the narratives that have been used by the counter-revolutionaries to justify um, why authoritarian stability is the only way to manage social political affairs in the Arab world, Western countries have actually kind of adopted some of these narratives. You know, if you look at what happened during the uh, election campaign in, in France, which is obviously still ongoing, looking how successful Le Pen was and how other right-wing, uh, hardcore right-wing parties have uh, were, if you look at the narratives used by Macron as well, the idea that Islamism is terrorism, that Islamic activism is terrorism. Um, um, these kind of narratives were used by authoritarians and illiberal liberals. Uh, and I think I think there is a huge problem in that. Um, the same obviously applies to the Republican Party. Many of the, 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 the Trump movement uh, followers in America as well adopt similar narratives. If you ask them about the Middle East, they would say, you know, the best way to order and shape the Middle East is by creating an order of authoritarian stability where authoritarian rulers kind of put a lid on any sort of activism, thereby creating stability, uh, which is obviously a very short term view. I, you know, if all data shows that long term repressive regimes will not be able to succeed, we will have another Arab Spring. And we've seen many waves of this Arab Spring playing out. Um, so it's clearly not a, a strategic approach, but this, it's an ideological one where the authoritarians share um, these sort of narratives with the illiberal liberals. And I think that has very much undermined uh, the liberal order. And obviously the worst part of all of this, moving outside of the Arab Spring, is if you look at the fate of Palestinians um, and the support for Israel and the way that Israel's right to exist um, has been used to justify um, any sort of repression against any sort of Palestinian activism, also denying the right of Palestinians to have their own state, um, then, you know, the violence, political violence, uh, psychological violence, and obviously, you know, physical violence used against Palestinians by, by Israelis, and not just in Gaza, but also we've seen that now flaring up around Al-Aqsa and, and in Jerusalem, we've seen it last year during the Gaza war. This sort of violence goes unpunished, and the liberal order hasn't or those defenders of the liberal order haven't stood up against it. And it's also not a coincidence that Israel is aligning with the authoritarian Arab countries now because they kind of all believe that Arab activism essentially brings instability. Israelis have always believed that if um, the Arab street was able to decide their own or determine their own uh, political fate and societal fate, outside of those repressive regimes, it would create an order in the Arab world or in the Middle East that would be anti-Israel, hence why the Israelis were always against it. And these authoritarians, obviously, and that's a, an ideological alignment that the Israelis share with the Russians, it's one that they share with Saudi Arabia and the UAE and also with Egypt. Um, and so Israel is actually pivoting 
away from the liberal order and, and, and very much integrating into a new authoritarian order in, 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 in this part of the world. And so it's, it's, it's not really a surprise also that the Israelis didn't take a very strong position against Ukraine, despite the fact that obviously the president is, is Jewish. There are loads of Jewish Ukrainians who are suffering at the hand of Russians. Um, and Israel hasn't really stood up for them, but have actually been fairly neutral, or even pro-Russian. So and, 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 and the whole time, the liberal world has basically stood by not saying anything. And, you know, even with the, the violence now against Palestinians in Al-Aqsa, we see Europeans and, and, and Americans saying, you know, and also the media saying, you know, we have to see both sides, although there aren't both sides. You know, one side is being violated, uh, is trying to, is, is, is stopped from, you know, praying peacefully. And the other side is basically using armed violence and brute force to to act against um, mm. people who are not even activists, you know. So, um, and I, that has definitely undermined the credibility of the liberal order. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, a surfeit of hypocrisy, isn't there? Because if you look at the, the UK, for example, uh, uh, where we are now mightily condemning the Russian oligarchs that back Putin, uh, we've allowed a lot of easy money to come into the UK via not just the Russian oligarchs, but the Gulf potentates and their ruling families. And I'm wondering how much damage is that doing to the fabric of our democracy? Oh, quite a lot. Um, so I, I think if I look at networks as the most effective tool and way of organizing statecraft in the 21st century. So rather than uh, working through institutions that are state owned and who are usually hierarchical, what we've seen particularly the United Arab Emirates do very successfully is delegating to uh, to networks that they've curated in in countries that they want to operate in. So they've done it in Washington first and foremost, but they've done it in London, they've done it in Paris, and these networks include a variety of different actors who act on the behalf of the UAE to achieve strategic objectives in favor of the UAE. So these are influence networks, they're information networks um, that first and foremost obviously try to shape perception in a, in a, in a positive pro-Emirati way, but it's also about plugging narratives that are conducive to achieving UAE outcomes in the Middle East and, and elsewhere. And they've done this via a variety of different actors. So, you know, obviously media companies such as The National that is publishing in English. It's usually, you know, bot, bot and troll farms that we've that we that have been very well published, publicized, how they operate, trying to subvert um, discourse in, in, in Western democracies. They have used lobbying firms trying to buy out politicians and former politicians and civil servants. Um, they have built networks of think tanks that get massive funding to to not only you know use uh, produce research that is pro Emirati but using research that is anti you know used to be anti Turkish anti Qatar anti Muslim Brotherhood anti Islamic anti Islamist and, and and thereby shaping perceptions particularly in countries like the UK but they've also used obviously um, um, investments very strategically. You, if, you re, if you recall in 2015, the UAE wanted the British government to have an investigation into the Muslim Brotherhood. And that was part of a quid pro quo where they told the government, if you don't do the investigation into the Muslim Brotherhood, um, you will not get these very lucrative defense deals. And this is how they use their, their financial power. And then last but not least, obviously, they're investing quite a lot into uh, in, in, in sports more, more generally. The most important one in, in the UK is, is Manchester City, where you know, it's, there is no dissociation between the owner of Manchester City, who is Mansour bin Zayed, who is the brother of Mohammed bin Zayed, who's one of the, the I call them the three, the triumvirate of, of the, the three most powerful men in the UAE, which is Mansour, Mohammed and, uh, and Tahnun bin Zayed. 
And Mansoor is the kind of, he's the guy who controls all the financial power and him controlling Manchester City um, shows how, um, you know, how powerful the UAE and how directly they influence um, this very popular club, putting money in there. Uh, and all the investigations into Manchester City show that there isn't a dissociation between uh, the UAE and Manchester City. It's a huge tool of influence. And the same the Saudis have done now. They've, they've realized this is a very, very powerful tool to actually rally very committed and very loyal fans around the flag of, a, of an external player, an external country, an authoritarian country. Um, and what they do is they basically use that to advance their own narratives, but also mobilizing domestically uh, people around a particular cause. And that is very dangerous. I, um, you know, if, if the Russians do it and when the Russians do it, we, we in the UK at least have stood up against it and said, you know, this is not on and we need to do something about it. But because Saudi and the UAE register as partners, um, at least for now, um, we don't really look very closely. Yeah, I'm wondering, uh, you're quite right about sport. Uh, there are stories that the Bahraini uh, ruling family, the Al Khalifa, are apparently making a bid for AC Milan. And, and as you say, sport is a very useful vehicle for, for their cause, the cause of promoting their brand, if you will. And, and, and it's interesting, too. I mean, if you look at Roman Abramovich, all right, he's, he's been told you have to sell Chelsea. Uh, but... <laughs> There we are with Mohammed bin Salman. He's purchased Newcastle United via the Public Investment Fund, which he controls. And he's a guy who stands accused of ordering the killing of the journalist Jamal Hashoji, mm. incarcerated thousands. He's presided over the execution of hundreds. He allows no criticism. And yet we seem content that he owns a football club, but not Abramovich. Yeah. This surely is a measure of the mess that we in liberal Western democracy have gotten ourselves into. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because we, we, we use two types of measures. Um, and it's all about narratives, all about perception. Russia has been perceived as an antagonist, as a competitor, as an enemy. And, among, and this is something that most British people can live with because it comes naturally. We, you know, Post-Cold War, we've lived for 40, 50 years knowing that the Russians were the most important enemy. And so that, that kind of goes down very easily. Same kind of goes uh, when about Saudi. Saudi registers as well as a very negative country of, in the perception of most British people. Saudi has a very negative perception. Um, nonetheless, when it's about money, you know, Britain is very willing to, to open that up. And they do that until, uh, you know, the last minute when the regulator, regulator says this is no longer on. With Roman Abramovich, we knew he was very close to Putin. We knew that we were, you know, Putin was registering as an enemy and what they were doing in Ukraine is not something that was... Um, um, that was in the British interest or even beyond that, you know, the involvement of, of Russians uh, killing uh, their dissidents on British soil. We knew that Abramovich had close ties to that regime and we didn't do anything about it until the war happened. But because we don't care about what the UAE or Saudi do in the Middle East, really, we don't care what they do to dissidents. We don't care whether they kill journalists. We don't care whether they commit uh, war crimes or they use mercenaries. You know, they infringe, infringe on all aspects of the liberal order on a, on a constant uh, basis. But, you know, because most people don't really think there is an issue with that. And also because the British government doesn't seem to think there is an issue with that. Um, you know, business obviously um, takes its, um, you know, takes its um, course. Mm -hmm. it's, been, it's been reported that uh, Jake Sullivan, President Biden's national security advisor, angered uh, Mohammed bin Salman by raising the killing of Jamal Hashoji uh, in a recent meeting. Yet, Jared Kushner was at the receiving end of a $2 billion investment from the PIF. 
despite the fact that uh, Mohammed bin Salman was warned not to give Kushner the money by senior fund advisors, um, he overrode their objections. I'm just wondering how eagerly the Saudis, particularly MBS, uh, are anticipating the return of Donald Trump or one of his acolytes to the White House. Yeah, I mean, this is these these sovereign wealth funds are very very important tools and 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 means of, of statecraft for these countries. And Saudi has used this, and it's now using it more than than ever in terms in terms of just not not just uh, creating economic returns, but creating political returns. And and this is a great story um, that to showcase that. And obviously, the Trump era was an era where transaction everything was transactional, everything was up for sale. Um, you know, the infamous the infamous uh, situation where, where where Trump was sitting next to MBS pulling up this check saying, um, you know, this is how much he's investing. That's why he's my friend. And, and obviously for the Gulf countries, particularly for UAE and Saudi, it was a much easier environment to operate in. There was no human rights conditionality. There was no value-based approach to this part of the world. And obviously everything was transactional in a way that you could buy your way out of any trouble that you get yourself in. And, and that's an environment that, the, that the, the Gulf countries understand. They understand that obviously with the funds they have, they can, and the networks they have as well, they can, they can really shape perception and also change cause and direction of policy. And that is obviously very, very dangerous for liberal democracies, but for any kind of country. This is the sort of subversion of, of strategic policymaking that I think, um, you know, we, if it was any other country, we wouldn't accept it. And, you know, despite all the negative press about this uh, incident of the PIF and, and MBS overruling it in favor of, of getting some, uh, gaining some influence with Kushner, it's not something that really makes Americans reconsider um, how they conduct their foreign and security policy. But I do think that the Saudis are betting as well as the UAE are at least hoping, let's not say betting, but they're hoping that there will be a, a change of administration uh, after the elections in 2024, bringing in a Republican, even if it's not Trump, it's I think Trumpism has taken over a large part of the Republican Party. I think that large parts of whoever is going to come in from the Republican Party on a Republican ticket will continue a more transactional approach to this part of the world, not one that is value based. And that is something that is definitely something that that will favor the Saudis and the Emiratis and might not favor as much the the countries who you know have taken a bit more of a value uh, very value loaded approach to the region. In uh, your article, you wrote the liberal momentum needs to be nurtured to turn the tide in a global competition over grand strategic narratives. We've been exploring those narratives, um, but two questions to end on, Andreas. The first is there a role for the Middle East to play in that competition, and the second is it too late? The trains already left the station. The authoritarians have won. No, uh, it's never too late. So you remember, you know, Fukuyama wrote this essay in the early 90s that, about the end of history, liberalism and liberal democracy being now being decided upon by all people in the world as being the most efficient way of organizing social politics. And that momentum lasted for a couple of years. And, you know, then we, we've seen the return of authoritarianism. We've seen the war on terror that undermined the liberal order and liberal values. Um, then came the Arab Spring. And again, that being something where that, that was very negative for the liberal order. And we've seen the decline of democracy. We, we see the creeping authoritarianism on not just overseas, but also domestically, you know, um, the, the use of, or let's call them democratic populists, whatever you want to call them, the likes of Trump, the likes of, um, of uh, uh, you know it, Italian leaders in Hungary, we've seen we've seen them left, right, and center emerging. That kind of suggests that you know that liberalism was uh, liberalism has failed. But obviously, that's not how history works. History works in 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 circles, and I do think we're we're now having a, a we have a momentum that we can exploit 
to kind of redraw the the the, the trend and redraw the trajectory where on on which at least we in the West are going on. Um, but it needs to be done again coherently. We shouldn't forget that the Russians still have quite a lot of influence in Western populations, despite the fact that we uh, shut down RT, that we shut down all their um, their, their various information outlets. There is still a, a chunkable size of people on the continent, in particular, looking at Germany, looking at France, who take pro who adopt pro Russian narratives, who take anti Ukrainian narratives, and these people are a threat to the liberal order domestically, but also obviously they, they have a huge impact on policymaking on the national level. We've seen that in Germany in particular with the social Democrats who take a very strong pro-Russian point of view. So there is a there is a momentum here, but it needs to be seized and it needs to be exploited in a very coherent and effective manner. And it starts with the Middle East. It starts with, because the Middle East is the neighborhood of Europe. It's one where there is a neighborhood policy. There is a lot of engagement by Europeans, but also Americans in the region. Um, and we've turned a blind eye, the West has turned a blind eye to so many crises. And the momentum and the narrative of saying we're standing up for the right and freedom of self-determination, the freedom from repression. If you do that in Ukraine, you need to do that in, in, in Egypt, you need to do that in Syria, you need to do that in Saudi, you need to do that in the UAE and everywhere else where there is repression. And it has to be done consistently and coherently. But we're not doing it. And 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 that that is part of that's the part that worries me. But the liberal, the liberal idea isn't dead. It doesn't just need states to support this and uh, enforce this. It also requires people, civil society in particular, to mobilize around it. And we have to stop being so selective on where on who we think deserves liberalism and who doesn't deserve liberalism. You know, this illiberal liberal um, idea and arrogance and hubris of thinking that liberalism is only something for some people and not for others. Uh, I think is, is is also part of the problem. But I do think the Middle East plays a very pivotal role of where we can expand the narrative, where we can expand the, the activism to say, let's stand up for this and let's make the world a better place by standing up for the rights of individuals rather than the rights of authoritarian regimes. Andreas, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Andreas Krieg, an assistant professor at the Defence Studies Department of King's College London, an author of Sociopolitical Order and Security in the Arab World, published by Palgrave Macmillan. We welcome your comments. It's been two years since we launched the podcast, and our audience has grown tenfold to more than 5,000 listeners a month. So a big thanks to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on SoundCloud, Amazon Music, or other audio platforms. In addition to our podcast, the Arab Digest daily newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts, analysts like Andres. Analysts like Andres. If you'd like a free trial to the newsletter, simply go to ArabDigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.